chapter 1, James chapter 1. We're down in James 1, verse 6. James 1, 6. Before we begin this evening, remember it's always vital that we make sure that we are in fellowship, that we have uh, relaxed and focused on the Lord, that we have uh, admitted or acknowledged our sins to Him to make sure that we're in fellowship filled by means of the Holy Spirit so that we can learn doctrine, so that it will be stored in our soul and so that we can use it. That's the end result. You know, sometimes I think we get so caught up in the process and we're so excited about learning doctrine and all of the things as we uh, go through the Scriptures that we forget that the bottom line is that this is to transform our thinking so that it transforms our character so that our lives are different. And that's the bottom line. Uh, that's what we're going to get to in, uh, later on in James where he talks about not being a hearer only, but also a doer. That is someone who not just takes the time to go to Bible class and build doctrinal notebooks and develop his understanding of, of the Word, but someone who takes it, thinks about it, reflects upon their own life, looks into the mirror that doctrine develops in their own soul, evaluates themselves, and then moves moves forward in terms of application, not being afraid to really take a hard look at what's going on. So that's that's the thrust of James, and that all starts under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So with that, let's take a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, as we look at Your Word, we are reminded that Jesus said, Thy Word is truth. That we are, He later prayed, to be sanctified by means of truth. So that it is the truth of Your Word that works in our lives to transform our thinking and is that instrument You use to set us apart in service to Yourself. So that first and foremost, if we are going to have any production in our lives, and if we are going to have our lives count at all in terms of Your will and Your plan, it begins by devoting ourselves to the study of Your Word, learning it, uh, becoming familiar with it, making every thought in Your Word our thought, so that when we are done, our thinking is Your thinking, and the mind of Christ has taken up residence in our soul, and we go through our lives thinking and acting, talking, speaking, as Jesus would, because we so are in such intimate knowledge of Him through Your Word. So, Father, we pray now as we study Your Word that God the Holy Spirit would drive it home into the depths of our minds, that we might understand it, that we might believe it, apply it, and make it a part of our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I thought it would be interesting to give you for just a little introduction little briefing on uh, what I got a great privilege to do the last couple of days. We didn't get a chance to do this when Pam and I went to uh, D.C. last month in June because the individual involved was on vacation himself. In fact, he was down in Baraka. And guys, some of you may have seen this last Wednesday night if you went home and watched uh, Primetime Live. Uh, oh, what's the, what's the interviewer's name? The blonde that's on there. I can never think of her name. Who? Diane Sawyer. Diane Sawyer had a special on there dealing with biochemical warfare and all the biological agents. And of course, that's something that's in the news all the time now, and, and uh, especially with what's going on and has gone on in Iraq over the last couple of years. And one of the key players on our team is a man by uh, the name of Colonel David Franz. And uh, David Franz was raised a Mennonite in uh, Kansas, and somebody gave him a book by. Bob theme called War, Moral, or Immoral when he was a teenager or in college, and he gave up his pacifistic Mennonite beliefs and joined the army. He is a medical doctor. He's one of our top, has been one of our top military people in the whole field of biologics and, and uh, chemical warfare and everything. In fact, he was on three or four of the teams that have gone into Iraq and investigated all of the various sites where they were manufacturing uh, biological uh, warfare elements. He was instrumental in a number in the negotiations involved in a no, couple of the treaties that we have uh, put together with Russia and with others. 
He's gone into the Soviet Union and now Russia uh, several times to look at their plants. And so he um, took uh, Pam and me and a friend of ours uh, down to USAMRID at Frederick, Maryland, which is the United States Army Medical Research Institute in Infectious Diseases. That is the military counterpart to the CDC. If you ever read the book, The Hot Zone, and if you haven't, I highly recommend it. It's a true story, and it's all about the discovery and the, the development of the uh, uh, Ebola virus. And he's mentioned in that book, and it all centers around the uh, activity. A lot of the activities took place down there at USAMRIT, so it was very interesting to go in there and see the, all the various rooms, because they have the different categories of rooms where different diseases are treated and how they, all the security measures they take to make sure those pathogens and those viruses don't get out into the, into the air. And I mean, the engineering of the building is just, just incredible. He took us all upstairs and we looked at the air conditioners and you'd have loved it, Ken. All the uh, uh, ways set everything up and to keep these, all the various filters to completely filter the air so nothing can escape. But it was pretty fascinating to see and to know how God has people like this that we don't know about who are in key positions like this. Who would know that, that, that we had a believer that had been on doctrine for 25 years or more who was one of the key players in things like this. So you see, Jesus Christ controls history. And He does that in many ways through believers who grow to spiritual maturity and are in the right place at the right time and God uses prepared people. It was also sort of scary to see where we are in this world in terms of how many of these types of diseases are... are it's not as many as most people think. There's only two or three that are really stable enough and only two or three that people have the ability, the countries really have the ability to launch them by missile and to attack another country. But the way technology is advancing and genetic studies and different things like that, it's just, it's just scary. I mean, the human race could self-destruct at any time with the release of any of these uh, biological agents into the atmosphere in a major city. And not even that, you have other, other things like uh, Marburg virus, Ebola virus, a number of other viruses that... Uh, somebody can be in Africa one day, be exposed to this virus, get it, catch a plane home, be riding the subway in New York coughing and infect hundreds of people. And you know, within three days, three to five days, if you get Ebola, you're dead. And it can, it's highly contagious and can pass. It, it, it's, air, it, it's not airborne. Most forms of it are not airborne. There was one form that they discovered that it did pass to humans. This is what the hot zone's all about. Well, I won't give it away. You need to read the book. It's a lot of fun. It's a, for a nonfiction book, it reads like a suspense novel. A friend of mine started reading it one morning. His wife had read it. He's at the breakfast table getting ready to go to work. And he picks it up and starts reading it. Next thing he knew, it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And he didn't go to work. So it's a good read. It adds a little bit because you know at least a couple of the players in the book are believers. So, uh, but it was a, it was it was it kept making me think the whole time about how man has such tremendous potential for destruction, such power, and yet as believers we don't have to focus on that. We don't have to be afraid because we know that Jesus Christ controls history, and the Lord is in control of all of these things. But it also made me think. I wanted to go back through and read Revelation a little bit because uh, it just, you know, I'm no date setter and never will be, but sometimes it sure looks like it could be right around the corner. James 1 6. We're studying about stress and adversity. We realize that adversity is inevitable. In all of our lives, we face all kinds of suffering, all kinds of adversity, but Stress is optional. The, the, the thing about the Scripture is that the Bible teaches that you don't have to succumb to stress. Stress is the inside pressure of the soul. Adversity is the outside, external pressure of the soul brought on us by circumstances, people, events. And we do not have to succumb. That's the issue of our volition. We can u- instead utilize the stress busters that God has given us. And God has uh, given us in Scripture... Ten stress busters. These are skills, spiritual skills, that you and I can use as we go through a situation and face an adversity. I'm going to go back to this chart. 
You become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ when you express faith alone in Christ alone. It's not by works. You do not have to try to impress God with who you are or how good you are or how much you've done. Can you see that okay? All right. Uh, how much you've done or how holy you are. You don't have to bargain with God. You don't. Ha- I heard a guy, and we're going to have communion this Sunday. Heads up, guys. Since we didn't have enough deacons here this last Sunday. I heard a guy on the television the other night telling people that you, it was, you had to celebrate communion every single week. If you didn't, you were guilty of a mortal sin. And you, if you died, you would go to hell if you had not been to communion that week. I was appalled at the legalistic bondage that that put on people. And so many people are operating under the assumption that they have to do these things. They have to go through these various rituals in order to get God's grace. They're manipulating God. It's sort of a bargain thing. And it's a perversion of the whole concept of grace. And grace means that salvation is a free gift that God gives. He has done everything for us. That's, That's just phenomenal to think about that. Not only did He do everything for us in terms of salvation... But He did everything for us in the Christian life. But our volition, that's the V here, is what's important. We have to decide positively for God or negatively against God. We have moment by moment, day to day decisions to make as to whether or not we're going to utilize the assets that God has given us, the spiritual assets God has given us so that we can grow spiritually and move forward in the Christian life. We come through tests. These tests are designed to evaluate the doctrine that's in our soul. We need to come to Bible class on a regular basis to learn, but that's not the starting, that's the starting point. That's not the end point. We learn doctrine, and then the tests give us the opportunity to apply doctrine. And as we grow, we learn key doctrines that relate to our life. This is a picture of our soul in the middle, the mentality, self-conscious, volition, emotion, and conscience. That makes up the real you, our soul, that invisible part of us. And as we learn doctrine, a wall is built around our soul such that when we face the onslaught of adversity or prosperity, this wall protects us so that we do not convert. If we're a positive volition, this external adversity is not converted into the internal pressure of stress in the soul. And as we grow, as we learn these skills, we can have inner happiness. And this is the joy that James talks about in James 1, 2, count it all joy. And the more I think about this, and over the last couple of weeks I've been thinking again in terms of what's going on in this epistle, I think that James starts off with the high point. He says, you need to do this. And everybody would say, how do I do that? How do I count a joy in the midst of devastating circumstances? So, that's the rest of the epistle. It's everything that builds up that you need to learn and develop in your spiritual life to reach that point of spiritual maturity where you can count it all joy and move through tests, move through adversities and, and sufferings without any emotional upheaval because you know that God is your rock, He is your stability, and He is the source of your strength. And so, as we go through James, we're going to see how these different problem-solving devices, which have been, these are doctrines that have been extrapolated from various scriptures and then categorized. We hold to the concept, I haven't gone over this since I've been here, some of you old-timers who've been here a while know this very well, others of you may not. We believe that the teaching of God's Word must follow three principles, conveniently summarized under the acronym ICE, I-C-E. I stands for isagogics, not a word you find that too many people know. Isagogics has to do with the backgrounds of Scripture, the historical background, understanding uh, the culture, the context in which the Bible was written. The Bible must always be interpreted in the time in which it was written. And that applies to isagogics. Who was, what was going on historically at that time? Understanding things about the various empires that, that uh, are mentioned in Scripture, Egypt, Babylon, Rome. Second is categories. And what categories are is the classification of what the Bible teaches, all of the principles, in terms of various subjects. 
so that they are then easily taught. For example, we've been looking at the subject of adversity and stress. That's one category. Doctrine of suffering is another category. On Sunday mornings, we've taught about the deity of Christ. That's another category. So we break these subjects down into categories so that they're more easily grasped and understood. And you, the believer, can then understand. We learn everything categorically. We, we, uh, they're broken down so that we can assimilate them and make them a part of our thinking. And then the final is E, exege- exegesis. Exegesis is the process of studying, analyzing the Word of God so that we can extrapolate from it the principles of doctrine which we can apply in our lives. To do exegesis, you have to understand grammar. You have to understand the original languages of Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic. You have to understand the grammar, the syntax. You have to understand idioms. Uh, it's more than you get in one or two years of Greek. Uh, you usually go to seminary and maybe get three or four years of Greek, and then you need to build on that in the rest of your lifetime as you continue to pick up uh, a new Greek grammar here or Hebrew grammar there and work your way through that. And as you're exegeting, you constantly look things up to improve and hone your skills so that you can begin to think within the language of the uh, of the Bible, the Greek in the New Testament, Hebrew in the Old, and Aramaic in parts of Daniel, Ezra, and uh, a couple other passages. So, isagogics, categories, but this isn't the order of importance. It starts with exegesis. Then you go to isagogics. And then you go to categories. The categories are the result as you teach it, and so people can understand it. And I've been thinking about this, and really I think what happens is, this is a linear chart. And it, talks, it expresses this or illustrates what I'm teaching in terms of a linear flow. First, you learn about confession. That's the most basic form, uh, thing you have to learn in the Christian life. What do you do when you, when you sin? You have to get back in fellowship. We have our familiar diagram. Salvation, you're entered into two spheres that describe your relationship with the Lord. The bottom sphere has to do with time. The top sphere with eternity. Up here, you're in Christ. Permanently, you can never lose that. You are a believer in Christ, a child of God. That is your position forever and ever. And no matter what happens, what you do, what choices you make, what sins you commit, God knew about those sins. Billions and billions of years in eternity passed. And He made sure that Jesus Christ paid for that sin on the cross so that you never ever again have to worry about that sin. That somehow I might commit a sin that is too great for God's love and His provision. In time, you commit that heinous sin. You shock yourself. You're out of fellowship. You're in what the Bible calls carnality. You get back in fellowship through 1 John 1, nine. Simply admit or acknowledge your sin to God. That's all that's required. It's not a feeling sorry. It's not a guilt trip. Anything like that. That's a foundation. You can't go anywhere in the Christian life till you master that. So if we were to take our diagram, here's the soul. We'll just put the soul here. We're going to build... Wait a minute. I'm challenging myself here. We're going to build try to develop a three-dimensional object here. The foundation layer, which is this layer right down here, is going to be made up of confession here and filling of the Holy Spirit here. And then over on this side, we're going to have what we're going to study tonight, the faith rest grill. So these are the elements in that foundation. Everything is built upon that. So the, the, this diagram that I have on the other chart is, is linear. And I don't want to communicate the wrong idea that first you develop this, and then you develop this, and then you develop this, and then you go to doctrinal orientation, and then to grace orientation, and then to a personal sense of your eternal destiny, and then you don't develop it, get all of one done, and then you go to the next. There's a dynamic to this. Because there's an interrelationship in all of these different skills and and, uh, stress busters. And as you build in these three, laying the foundation, it builds this this diagram. And uh, some of you may have been taught uh, an older construct called the edification complex of the soul. Which key word there is edification. Which means to build something up, to strengthen something. And the key in the Bible is that you as a believer are to have your soul strengthened and edified. 
And you do that by taking in God's Word and as you take it in and as you believe it, as it becomes epinosis, and you use that in your life and as you use it, it's like working out your muscles. You go down to the gym and you get on the treadmill and you work out and that builds some endurance. And then you pick up some weights and you do some weight training. And you start working those weights and you go through a set of 10 reps and then you build up to where you're doing maybe three or four reps of 15 like that and you increase your weights. And as you increase those weights, you go back and do uh, maybe two or three sets of 10, then two or three sets of 12, then two or three sets of 15 over a period of two or three weeks. And then you add more weights and you decrease the number of repetitions you do. And you just keep doing that. What happens over a period of time is your muscles build. You start to lose weight, get a little definition in your, in your body, and you begin to, uh, your, your muscles begin to strengthen and, and you'll find that you stand up a little straighter and your shoulders are pulled back and, and your, your abdominals tighten up. And what happens is that you've strengthened your body that way and you've protected it because with that, all that strength training, uh, you know, it's going to build your muscle mass so you're not going to have to worry about osteoporosis so much when you get older and a number of other things that happen. Well, analogous to that is what happens in the spiritual life in the spiritual realm. You start taking in doctrine. You hit those tests of faith. That's like that resistance that you get in that weight training. And you got have resistance there. Now you can just say, I don't feel like it today. I'm just going to go home and watch TV. And I'm not going to exercise that, that faith muscle at all today. I'm not going to use that doctrinal orientation muscle. I, I just, I, I'd rather go have a, have a hot fudge Sunday because it would be a lot easier to get through life if I just ate all of that rather than, than take the time and energy to go into the gym every day and work out. So, in the spiritual realm, you hit those tests and instead of caving into your sin nature, which tempts you to go to that hot fudge Sunday spiritual solution of emotionalism or anger or legalism or religious activity or uh, whatever it may be, you're going to stick with doctrine and you're going to respond to that situation in positive volition and you're going to exercise the faith rest drill. You're going to claim a promise and you're going to apply it to the situation and you're going to relax and rest in God. Well, what happened? You just went through 15, three sets of 15 reps with that 40-pound barbell doing curls. And now your biceps, spiritual biceps, are a little bit stronger. And the next time you hit a test, it's going to be just a little bit easier. I don't want to communicate that it's going to be easy. I said it's going to be a little bit easier. You're building a, your spiritual muscles. And what happens is you are erecting around your soul this fortress, this bulwark that protects your soul from those outside pressures of adversity. And inside this fortress, everything is calm. Everything is relaxed. There's tranquility. There's contentment. And there's happiness beyond anything that you can imagine. And so, this is not just some linear thing. You go from one thing to the next. It's a dynamic. Even as a young believer, you can begin to appreciate some things about uh, sharing the happiness of God and having inner happiness and that calm and using that just by claiming a simple promise like uh, uh, Philippians 4, 5, and 6. Be anxious for nothing but in everything with prayer and supplication. Uh, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God this is part of your tranquility and inner happiness. Problem-solving device number nine. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard, here's our concept, will guard your hearts, that's the right lobe of your soul, your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So that inner happiness sets up that part of that fortress. And it comes at a little higher level. So we have a dynamic taking place there. That even as a young believer, you can take that promise... You can claim it, apply it to the situation, and begin to use those advanced problem-solving devices to a small degree. So everything can come in at different levels and as you grow and mature. But the foundation stone, the foundation under which everything, on which everything is stabilized are those basic introductory problem-solving devices. Confession, filling of the Holy Spirit, and faith rest drill. So last week, we started looking at the faith rest drill because that's the background for the sixth verse. The sixth verse, really the thought begins in verse 5. You've hit a, you've hit a test of faith. 
You're not quite sure what to do, how to handle it. You lack wisdom. Wisdom here is not the sophisticated wisdom of the Gentiles. It's not abstract knowledge. It has to do with the application knowledge of the Word of God. Epinosis in the right lobe of your soul. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Ask brings in the category of prayer. And what do we know about the answer to prayer? That God is the one who gives to all men generously and without reproach. That's grace. That's what we can rely on. And that brings in what? That brings in that, that uh, fourth problem-solving device, doesn't it? Prayer has to have some element to it of grace orientation. Because you know that if you ask of God, He's going to give it to you generously and without reproach. He's not going to say, okay, I'll answer your prayer, but next time you better do this. Or if you get to church, then maybe I'll answer your prayer. There's no bargaining there. There's no sense of legalism. There's nothing that God requires of you in order for Him to provide the answer. The concept in that verse is talking about if any of you hits needs doctrine to handle situations in life, God, out of His justice and out of His fairness and His love for you as a child of God, will provide generously and without reproach, and it will be given to you. That's a promise you can memorize and that you can apply in the midst of testing. And then there's a contrast set up in verse 6 to, to, to further emphasize what has to take place in the asking. But let him ask by means of faith. And we see a phrase that is so critical and important. And you're learning a bit of Greek grammar related to this. And that is the preposition in the Greek in plus the dative of pistis. E-N-P-I-S-T-I-S. Pistis is translated faith, trust, confidence. In fact, confidence comes from the Latin word con, the prefix con, and the verb fide, which is the Latin for faith. So it's with faith. It means faith means trust. It means confidence in someone, specifically in God, that He will do what He has said He will do. So we are to ask by means of faith. In contrast, faith is on the one hand, doubting is on the other. Notice the Bible says it's going to be one or the other. Either you're going to be trusting God and His promises or you're going to be doubting God. One or the other. If you're in this category, then God says you are stable. Stability comes from developing that fortress around your soul. If you are a doubter, no matter who you are, what's going on in your life, anything else, how, how well you've snowed other people, God says you're unstable. Instability is what characterizes your life. And you're on the path to becoming a neurotic and psychotic Christian because you do not understand that the only stability comes from using the divine solution in facing problems. Let him ask by means of faith. So, underlying this is the principle of the faith rest drill. So, last week we gave about six principles by way of introduction to the problem-solving device of the faith rest drill. Let's go over these again. Uh, The first point that I had was that the faith rest drill is one of the ten stress busters. Now, we've gone over that and you've already seen that diagram, so we can move on. The faith rest drill is the third of the ten stress busters. Point number two. The beginning of of the faith rest drill is to believe God, to trust God's promises. Promises such as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Psalm 37, 4 through 5, 1 Peter 5, 7. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Casting all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. Some of these other promises are Psalm 4, 8. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep for you, Lord, only make me to dwell in safety. Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. So you don't have to worry so much about, Lord, is this your will or is that will? As long as you are doing what Scripture says to do in terms of walking by means of the Holy Spirit and following the mandates of Scripture, God is going to make your paths straight. God's not playing a shell game with you. See, too often people teach divine guidance like it's some sort of shell game. God has one and only one will for your life. And if you miss it, well, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? You've got to figure it out. God's up here with three walnut shells and He's got to pee under one of them. And you've got to guess which one is God's will for your life. He's not playing that kind of a game with you. 
it's really clear that the Scriptures lay out exactly what it's God's will. God says, flee fornication, for this is the will of God. Be thankful in all things, for this is the will of God. There's many, many mandates that clearly express what the will of God is for your life. And they describe what I call a circle, a circumference. And as long as you're within that circle, whether you put your left shoe on first or your right shoe on first, or go to Texas A&M or Military Academy at West Point, or whatever, may be irrelevant to God. He may be more concerned about how you make the decision than what the decision is, as long as it glorifies Him. But if God wants you one place or another, and you're trusting in the Lord with all your heart, and you choose to go to one place, and He wants you at another, what does that verse say? He will make your path straight. It will happen. He will work out the circumstances, and you will end up wherever it is that God wants you to be if He has a specific thing for you. So you don't have to worry about trying to figure out whether or not you've missed the will of God in your life. If your attitude is to trust Him completely, He will make your path straight. Psalm 55.22 Cast all your burdens upon the Lord, and He shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Various other passages we looked at, Psalm 56.11, Deuteronomy 31.8. These are various promises, and there are so many more. A good place to start is to just read through the Psalms. Just comb through the Psalms. And if you're going through some kind of adversity, the Psalms are one of the best places to go because so often what David does in the Psalms is he's, in many of the Psalms, are what what are called lament Psalms because David expresses his lament, his sorrow, his sadness over his current affliction. He's going through hard times and he's, he's suffering. And he expresses that to God because, and he starts off with his focus on the problem and not on the solution. But as he focuses on the problem, then his mental attitude shifts. And it shifts over to the character of God. And he uses what we're going to look at later on in something that, that we'll, call the, we'll call the essence of God rationale, which is a little more advanced form of the faith rest drill. The basic form is basic uh, mixing your faith with promises. Then you go to the next stage to use a little doctrine. And you say, well, Lord, if you're omniscient and you knew about this problem billions of years ago, If you're omnipotent, that means you're more powerful than this problem. If you love me, then that means you're not going to put me in a situation without giving me everything I need to solve the problem. My conclusion is this problem is nothing. If God's for me, who can be against me? That was Paul's conclusion in Romans chapter 8. And what you've done is now you've used doctrine that you've learned and you've set up a reasoning process, a rationale, a series of premises, and you've come to a conclusion, and the result of that is you now have tremendous confidence in God, and you can relax in the midst of that adversity and know that God is going to take absolute care of you. So we're going to look at how David handles that. Point number three is that the faith rest drill is a problem-solving device that's been used by believers in all dispensations for carrying and using what Paul calls the shield of faith, in the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. That's about verse 11 through 18. He describes the armor of God. Verse 4. The faith rest drill is the glue that holds together all of the stress busters on the fortress of the soul. That's what keeps them in line. That's the mortar that holds those bricks together in that fortress around the soul. Point number 5. These ten stress busters are designed by God for every believer to deal with every single adversity, every problem of suffering in this life, but you must do it from your own soul. You can't do it from somebody else's soul. You can't lean on somebody else, the fact that somebody else is the one who keeps going to Bible class. It's somebody else who keeps learning these things. And now when you're going through hard times, you call them up on the phone and say, you've got to help me because of what just happened. No, you need to do that. Proverbs 3 personifies wisdom. That's, we've seen that as epinosis of the soul. And Proverbs 3 says that, that to, to just paraphrase it, you need to get wisdom when you get the chance. Because when the time comes for you to need it, it's too late for you to get it. And if you don't take the time to acquire wisdom and build the spiritual strength in your soul, to fortify your soul, then when the adversity comes, it's too late. You blew your chance. You need to have developed your the, the fortress in your soul long before then. Number six, believers have choices every time any adversity, any prosperity, or any situation occurs 
which demands you to make a choice as to how you're going to respond to it. That choice is either the divine viewpoint or human viewpoint. And if you do not respond in divine viewpoint, then you're going to convert that prosperity. Say you win the lottery. You've never seen stress until you've won the lottery. You've ever seen these, these things on television where they go back and they evaluate these people who have won the lottery ten years later? They have no capacity for it whatsoever. It destroys their lives. They're in debt. They've lost it all. Their marriages have been destroyed. Their families have been destroyed because they didn't have anything in their soul to give them the capacity to handle this enormous wealth. And it just frittered away and people took advantage of them and, and, and they, it, ruined their, it ruins their lives. So, uh, great wealth is not the solution to any problems. It brings its own array of problems. Now, when we look at faith rest drill, it goes back to the earliest stages of the Old Testament. We're told in Scripture about Abraham. In Romans 4, 20-21, the Apostle Paul said, Yet with respect to the promise of God, he, that is Abraham, did not waver in unbelief. In other words, Abraham is the stable believer of James 1.6. He had faith without any doubting. He did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. And that, once again, is our phrase, in pistis. In plus the dative of pistis. He grew strong. How? By means of faith. Now there, there's always a little bit of a of a double nuance to faith in passages like that. Faith is not only the the means by which he appropriated doctrine. That's the active sense. When you're using that faith rest drill and you're saying, I'm believing God, He told me to do this. He told me, as Abraham would say, He told me to leave Ur the Chaldees. Now, Abraham was a wealthy man. Abraham was probably one of the wealthiest men in the ancient world. And he grew up as an aristocrat in the third dynasty of Ur, about 2100 B.C. was about the time he was born. And somewhere about 2000 B.C., God says, Abraham, I want you to leave everything. I want you to leave your family, your friends, and I want you to go to the place, the land I'm going to give you. Well, he didn't leave all of his friends. He took his brother and his nephew with him. And, and his partial obedience. Now, none of you are ever guilty of that. But Abraham was. And so he had to go through a period of time where God had to teach him some things and he had to grow spiritually by means of faith. And the faith there was not just the active, Lord, I'm leaving Ur now and I'm going to Haran and I'm going to trust You to take care of me. That's the active sense. But there's the passive sense and that is what is believed. Lord, I'm believing certain doctrines about You that You love me and You take care of me and You have the power and the ability to, to do that and in Your omniscience You're not just taking me out in the wilderness to leave me but you are going to eventually take me someplace and I'm going to trust you. So it has to do with the doctrine also that Abraham believed. He grew strong by means of faith in the doctrine that was in his soul. Giving glory to God and being fully assured. There's our word that reminds us of confidence. Being fully confident. No doubting whatsoever. He is fully confident that, when, that what he, that is God, had promised, he was able also to perform. Now, that's the doctrine that he's applying here. Sort of a doctrinal rationale. He knows something about the essence of God, that God's faithful, God's not a promise breaker. Oh, I set myself up. I just hate using this phrase now. He's a promise keeper. God keeps His Word. I walked into that and didn't know it was coming. God keeps His Word. He never breaks His Word. You can always, always trust Him. And what God had promised Abraham knew, he would be able to perform. God would not let him down. That's what we need to understand. So Abraham knew that what God promised, he delivered, and that God was completely worthy of his confidence. So he used the faith rest drill as a problem-solving device. Abraham was followed by Joseph. Joseph never wavered in unbelief, never expressed doubt, but grew strong also by means of faith. And at the end of his life, as he was dying, he was talking to his his brothers and the rest of the family that had come from, from Israel and were now in Egypt. And he said, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you. What is he saying? God made a promise to Abraham. He said that his seed would be, there would be more, to, more numbers in his seed than all the stars of the sky and sand of the sea. Now, if God made a promise to Abraham like that, right now there's only about 140 of us, 
then there's a long way to go. So God's going to take care of you. He drew a conclusion from that that God had a future for the nation Israel and for the descendants of Abraham and that God would not go back on His Word that He had promised initially to Abraham, that He had reiterated to uh, Isaac, Abraham's son, and then restated again to Jacob, the father of and grandfather of most of the men in His presence, Joseph's father, Jacob. And He says, God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which He promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. That's the faith rest drill. I don't know how it's going to happen. We're all down here in Egypt right now. There's 150 of us. But God says that we're going to be uh, an innumerable host and we're going to be given this land that we just left. And so God's going to take us back there. So Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. So God then justified the faith rest attitude of, uh, of Joseph and delivered the people from bondage about 400 years later under the leadership of Moses. And in Moses, perhaps one of his most challenging times is the Israelites had their backs to the uh, Red Sea. Uh, he trusted the Lord. He did not waver in, in believing God. And he told the Jews, he said, Do not fear. Stand by and see the deliverance the salvation of the Lord which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians who you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. That is an incredible promise to stand and watch the deliverance of the Lord. And that's a very important command because in spiritual warfare, the believer is commanded to stand. Not to go out and fight the enemy, but to stand and God will deliver. So we have to focus on living the spiritual life. And whatever may be taking place in the spiritual realm in terms of the angelic rebellion between demons and the angels, and this is something that people forget today, and there's all this stuff and nonsense about, about casting out demons and demons persecuting Christians and all of this. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the only thing you need to do is stand and watch the deliverance of the Lord. And in fact, when they, the Jews translated the Old Testament, this passage... They translated it with the verb histemi in the Greek, which is the same word that Paul picks up and uses three times in the armor passage and spiritual warfare passage in Ephesians 6. It's the same concept. Just stand and watch the deliverance of the Lord behind the shield of faith. So Moses uses the principle of the faith rest drill and God is faithful and the Jews are delivered completely and the Egyptians are drowned in the Red Sea never to be heard from again. Moses understood the principle. Joshua understood it when he followed those what must have sounded like crazy instructions from God to march around the walls of Jericho and blast on a trumpet and then have the walls fall down. But he trusted God in spite of the fact that it ran against his, his human view, any human viewpoint wisdom and God gave them victory there and in every other battle where they followed the instructions of the Lord. And at the end of Joshua's life, Joshua challenged the nation with the following great statement, And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. David is another classic example of the faith rest drill. David's been anointed by Samuel, and he's just in obscurity back with the sheep, and his dad calls him in. And you know, we've talked about psychology and if anybody had an opportunity to just whine about how they were abused by their parents and just ignored, it would be David. Because David was overlooked by his father, Jesse. He's out with the sheep all the time getting the grunt jobs. And uh, the brothers are the ones that Jesse really promotes. And he's, he sent the older brothers off to the army to fight the Philistines. So he calls in David and says, your brothers need food. And he sends him up there. And David hears this big giant come out and challenge the whole nation. And everybody's just cowering in fear. It says in the Psalms, Then I will trust the Lord. So David went out to face Goliath with nothing but a slingshot, five stones, and a, and a staff. A javelin, which he didn't use. He threw the, st the stones. God was with his aim. But before he fought, he said, The battle... Is the Lord's. That's the issue. When we hit tests of faith, the issue is are we willing to say the battle 
is the Lord's. That reflects our faith rest attitude. So the faith rest drill goes from hero to hero throughout the Old Testament. And those men were visible heroes. But in the church age in which we live, this is the unique age of all of human history for every single believer is an invisible hero. You are designed to be just as much, if not more, of a hero than David or Moses or Abraham or anyone in the Old Testament because God has given each one of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ an array of spiritual assets that go far beyond anything that these Old Testament heroes ever had. And to whom much is given, much is also expected. And you see, as we look at our chart here, every now and then, even as a pastor, you sort of get what I, Bobby Thiem used to call a BFO. It's a blinding flash of the obvious. Driving down the highway, and I was thinking about this, and I said, well, you know, the end result of all this, this is our life, phase two in the spiritual life. The end result is right here. Judgment seat of Christ, our evaluation before Christ. Not to see whether or not we get into heaven, but to determine who and what we're going to be, what our roles and responsibilities are going to be, the quality of our inheritance in heaven, our rewards. Right now we're developing our capacity. All of a sudden I realized that's my job. As your pastor, my job is to teach you what you need to learn in order to be ready to stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that you can, Jesus will say of you, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's the task of the pastor, to teach you doctrine so that you can accurately understand the principles of God's Word so that when you get here, that is, if you were positive and you applied it in your life, then the result will be you will be a successful believer with rewards and inheritance and not a failure with a loss of rewards and temporary shame at the judgment seat of Christ. So in order to get there, we have to understand that the basic, one of the basic problem-solving devices or stress busters is the faith rest drill. This is something that even a brand new baby believer, and it's essential that a brand new baby believer starts using this because the most basic form of Bible doctrine is the promise of God. Just a simple, distilled statement that expresses in some cases, some profound doctrine. And you can grab hold of that particular doctrine and you can use it and apply it to your life. And let me see, I have something here I need to read. First Peter, 2 Peter 1.3 Seeing that His, God's divine power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these, that is, by His attributes, His glory and His essence, He has granted to us, given to us out of grace, His precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them, by mixing your faith with the promises of God, you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. In other words, you chose the uh, spiritual way instead of the sin nature way, and you're going to pursue spiritual maturity so that the character of God, partaker of the divine nature, so that the character of Christ is exemplified in you, and you're going to transform your thinking and have your character transformed to be like Christ. And this is something available to every single believer. God does not hold anything against us. The point here is we all, from the moment we trust Christ as our Savior, God gives every one of us the Holy Spirit, and we have Bible doctrine available. And the Holy Spirit is our teacher. This is what I've discussed with Operation Z. And the point of that is, it doesn't depend on your education. It doesn't depend on your background. It doesn't depend on your human IQ. It depends on the Holy Spirit. He is the one who makes it clear to you. So you cannot say, well, you know, I just can't understand it because I, I dropped out of school in the third grade or my IQ is only room temperature. That doesn't matter. God says that you can understand even the deep things of Scripture. But you have to be positive. You have to come to class. You have to learn. And I know guys that I've seen stay with it and listen, come to Bible class night after night. Man, they were some of the biggest losers and failures you could ever imagine when they started. Fifteen or twenty years later, 
you're just amazed at the grace of God in these people's lives and how you can never imagine that they were ever the kind of person they were once before. And it's all because of doctrine. And it's all because of what God has done in their life. So we have to learn that about faith rest drill. So the basic technique begins with mixing faith with promises. Hebrews 4, 1-3 tells us, Therefore, let us fear. And this is, I think there's a real element of fear here. It's the attitude of respect, but it's also an awareness that there is a negative to disobedience to God. And there ought to be a little bit of, of anxiety there, I think, in a, a good sense, that if we fail, there are consequences, and we really don't want that. That good fear you had when you knew that if you disobeyed your parents, your dad would take you out behind the woodshed and, and you would have to deal with that. Uh, let us fear lest, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good news, that is the gospel and Bible doctrine, proclaimed to us. Just as they also, and in the context he's talking about the Jewish believers in the Exodus generation. Now they saw, think about it. If you saw the miracles that they saw take place, how would you respond to God when you got out in the desert? Would you whine and cry, Lord, I don't like this food you've given me? That's what they did. I mean, they, they, they rejected God's grace provision time and time again because they were not positive to doctrine. They kept hungering for the leeks and the garlics of Egypt, the good food. They wanted to go back to Egypt where they had it good, they said, rather than eat this boring food that God's providing us out here in the wilderness. Now, it may provide everything for us, but it's just not seasoned like that wonderful cuisine back there in Egypt. And, and we had some comforts there. We were slaves, and we had a lot of problems, and we were abused, but, but we weren't out there in the middle of the desert where we were hot and thirsty and, and just ate the same old manna every single day. So they were negative. Just as they also, that is the Exodus generation, had everything, but the word they heard, the doctrine they heard, that Moses taught them, did not profit them. Here they are. Not quite in the same position, but generally speaking, they were saved, they were redeemed. Most of the people in that generation were believers. But when it came to living the Christian life, rather than hitting the test, and the test for them was being out in the desert, in the wilderness, moving from... Egypt to Mount Sinai and then up to the promised land rather than facing those tests with positive volition and trusting God so that they could move through the maturity cycle they operated on negative volition and they rejected God and they rejected those promises and they cried and they grumbled and they complained and they were controlled by the sin nature and they died miserable deaths and all the two in that generation were taken out eventually under the sin unto death and when you think about how many there were, if you look at the statistics, the census statistics given us in the book of Numbers, which tells you that there were about 800,000 males among the 12 tribes of Israel over the age of 20. How many Jews were there then if 800,000 males over the age of 20? Well, if there's one woman for every man, you're immediately up to one and a half million Jews. And if there's one child for every couple, then you're up to about 2.4 million and there were probably more. That's pretty conservative. Three or four million Jews. That's a city the size of Houston, Texas that Moses is leading out into the desert. Think about the dynamics, the logistics, feeding all those people. And every one of them thinks you're out to lunch. And there's only about three people in the whole crowd that are really positive to the doctrine you're teaching. Moses really had a hard job. So they're, they're complaining the whole way they're not listening to God and they don't want to relax in God's provision. Instead, they're converting all of that outside adversity into stress in the soul and they miss His rest. That's what that first verse says. While a promise remains of entering His rest. Rest means to relax. To relax. All this is going on around you, no matter what it is, you can just calm down and relax in the provision of God and not try to figure out that you're the one who has to solve all the problem, but that God has given you the solution. You don't have to panic like the Jews did when they hit the Red Sea. 
You don't have to start panicking again when there doesn't seem to be any food. And then when God provides, you don't want to say, you know, Bible class is really sort of boring. And we just keep hearing basically the same things over and again. And I'm kind of tired of going to church. Uh, they ate the same food. God provided that manna day in, day out. That was all there was. You know, don't, it's not about like a sweet cake or donut. So it tastes like coriander seed. I'm not sure what that tasted like. A little bit like a honey wafer. Donuts are great. I love donuts. But even donuts on a steady diet is going to get kind of boring after a while. And they just got bored with what God provided for it. So they began to complain. Now stage one of the faith rest drill means that we have to re- relax in the promises of God. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says, We walk by faith and not by sight. We, there's our phrase again. We walk by means of faith. Faith, that is the means that the Christian walks. What's the focus of faith? Remember, faith is, is non-meritorious. Faith means God does all the work and we trust in Him. Faith always has an object. That object might be faith, which is what you see on a lot of television, a lot of Christians. Oh, just have faith, brother. Faith, that's all you need. Well, faith in what? Faith in the Word of God. Believing the promises of God. That means you have to know something, doesn't it? You can't apply what you don't know. And you can't know what you don't take the time, the energy, the effort, the concentration, and the discipline to learn. Nothing you learn in life that's of any value comes easily. Every one of you have gone through stages, either in junior high or high school or college or with a job training, whatever it might be, where you really didn't like it and it was very hard and you were trying to learn this and it was difficult for you to grasp certain concepts, and, but, but you, you had to do it in order, to, in order to, to get the job or to perform the job. Well, the job you have now is much more important, that is living the spiritual life so that you can be a witness and testimony in the angelic conflict so that God is glorified. That's the task. And that means you have to go to school. And that school is the local church. And you have to learn everything that God has for you in His Word so that you can apply it. You cannot apply what you do not know and you cannot know what you do not take the time, energy, and effort to learn. And it takes discipline. And it takes making learning God's Word the highest priority in your life so that you arrange everything else in your life that you can so that your focus is on being in class to learn God's Word. Faith always has as its object the Word of God. Even its salvation. The Word of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So phase one in the faith rest drill is mixing promises with faith. And this is how you become a doer of the Word and not merely a hearer. David said, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. The next stage in problem-solving devices mixing is uh, reaching doctrinal rationales. Before we move on, I didn't change the page fast enough. Three stages in three different steps in the first stage of mixing the promises of God with faith. First, faith claims the promises. You have to know the promises. It really helps to get a little promise book sometime and start working your way through it. Just reading the promises. Uh, be careful though make sure that the promises you claim are promises God gave to you some people get in the Old Testament and their promises God gave to Israel and they don't have anything to do with you and then they say well this doctrine doesn't work I claim this promise and God didn't fulfill it so what are we going to do faith claims the promises looks at that claims the promises and then secondly it applies this is a passive aspect right here this is where you rest and you relax This is the active aspect where you do whatever the promise says you're supposed to do. Cast all your care upon Him, i.e., quit worrying about it. So what you do is you say, Lord, I'm giving this problem to you. What does that mean? It means you don't worry about it anymore. So faith applies the promises. And then the third stage is that faith takes control of the situation. When faith takes control, the result is rest relaxation 
cause. You begin to see or get a glimpse of what inner happiness is all about. Stage 2 is claiming various doctrinal rationales. What happens in a doctrinal rationale is you begin to think about different principles of God's Word. A rationale is merely taking two or three different principles and arranging them in the order of a premise and then reaching a conclusion. Basically, God is all-powerful. God has more powerful than any problem I ever face. God loves me. Therefore, God can overpower this problem. That's a very simple rationale. It didn't involve necessarily quoting any scripture, but you've taken doctrinal principles related to the essence of God and you've arranged them and you've reached a conclusion that God is greater than the problem that you face. That's basically what we mean by an essence of God rationale. And we'll start there next week and look at how David uses an essence of God rationale in terms of prayer even, as we're talking about it in James 1.6 next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for this time that we can focus on what it means to trust You and to use the faith rest drill that You've provided so much for us in terms of promises and that is by these promises in Your Word that we are able to see our character transformed so that we demonstrate in our souls and reflect in our souls the character of Jesus Christ. That we partake of the divine nature in that way. And that's the promise of 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Father, we thank You that it doesn't depend upon us, but it depends exclusively upon You and upon Your power. For You are all-powerful, omnipotent. And You, as omniscient, You've known about every situation, every problem, every heartache we'll ever face. And we know that whatever it is, we have a solution in You. And that Your solution is the only solution. And I pray for each one here that they would remember that throughout this week and seek to handle these the situations in their lives and to flex these spiritual muscles to produce spiritual growth. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.